0: If you do not speak about yourself, the you does not, I believe, develop correctly. You. The you disappears. There is no way to build relationships, human connections, without sharing something intimate about yourself. And to this day I'm not sure if. One or the other is the
1: correct way to go.
0: <laughs> Hey, hey, hello, hello. What to say? Welcome to the impossible episode. Apocalypse now. How are you, Henrik?
1: I'm most positively losing my mind over
0: here. This is, well, interesting, because it so just happens that I almost drove myself crazy just writing the notes for this particular episode.
1: You don't happen to remember all those many times when I told you not to do this. When I said to you precisely that this is a bad idea and we should never do this film, especially on, you know, with the recording schedule that we uphold in this podcast. You are forgetting the
0: very vital thing in all of this, Henrik. It's the fact that we're doing it exactly because it is
1: impossible. That that may be, but, you know, even the masochism has its limits.
0: Well, you know, it's one of those all-time legendary movies that we have to cover in this (laughs) podcast because I decided so for some reason. I am Cory, and my co-host is indeed Henrik, and this is the, oh god knows how many episodes, about 25 episodes that we've done at this point. And this month we'll be covering some of the most legendary movies that have been ever created to the celluloid, and... What can I do? Here we are. Oh, let's just start with something else first. Like, how's the weather? Have you met any birds outside?
1: No, actually, I've been since the morning, since I knew that we are doing this episode, I have kept myself locked inside a dark closet with a case of beer and some strong spirits and a pack of cigarettes. Just oh, so that I, I'm ready for this one.
0: Oh, you definitely are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, what is this cast, Henrik? This cast is a be all and all movie podcast that will cover all kinds of films in the company of a media assistant and to be master of arts. Where to start? Where to start?
1: The Big Bang and the Birth of the Dinosaurs is always a good place to start. Yeah, Uh,
0: once upon a time there was this guy called Francis Ford Coppola, and he decided that, since he had done the absolutely horrendous, absurdly obnoxious, like distasteful, disgusting, everlastingly irritating movies, the Godfather that nobody cared about on this planet, and everybody of course hated them according to him well some some critics said that he would never be able to do like a truly incredible artistic artistic film. Apparently Godfather was not enough. So he was driven by this emotion to create something bigger and he always wanted to do this film which is based on the book Roughly Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Joseph Conrad, this book was supposed to be first adapted into a film by Orson Welles but at the time the Producers decided that this would go too overboard in its production costs or just simply over their budget that they had estimated for what they want to have for Orson Welles' production. So that just ended right on its tracks right there. And what we have now is Francis Ford Coppola's attempt which made Cinema History as we know.
1: Yeah, this also was famously one of the most expensive films made on its time. Like The budget for this one was something like $30 million. And it was such a huge budget that Coppola's expenditure during making this film and the production costs were something that was actually reported news-wide because they were so extraordinarily high. And it was prophesied that the movie would cost so much that it could never actually make its budget back in any shape or form. And this was not even the initial production
0: budget. The initial production budget was something akin to the amount of 17
1: to 19 million dollars, right? And then yeah. it just completely yeah. ballooned. Yeah. During the making of this film, Coppola burned money like crazy and pretty much the starting budget was spent almost right off the gates and a couple of us needing more money constantly and he even had to take personal loans and mortgage his house and god knows what else to make sure that he managed to gather the finances to actually finish filming this movie.
0: And what which... are the comments of his wife? His wife said that he doesn't care, well it was never like a her personal money on the line, so I understand that. But her uh, husband was spending all that he ever like had. He had put his house for sale and God knows what else indeed. And But the, the wife's comment was simply, well, it's not a big deal because I just always kind of thought that our life was something like, it's not an exact quote, but something like, this lifestyle is uh, rather lavish and I was never really too much into this so uh, it's fine for me if we can just continue living like you know the ordinary american
1: well you know looking at at that comment by hindsight it's kind of a also kind of a funny because that is exactly what they are doing today based on Coppola's latest efforts which have been less than that great that is true the two
0: or three latest films that I have checked on the records of his resume, not very high reviews.
1: No, and I've actually checked the films, and I can see why the reviews are what they are. I mean, in my opinion, the downhill slope started with Jack, which he made in the 90s, and he never actually fully recovered from that one. It was a Robin Williams comedy, and it's it's absolutely absurd and completely unnecessary. And I'm not even going to
0: touch the subject of the Godfather. How I... Well, yeah, never mind. We can talk about my Godfather problems in the
1: Godfather episode someday. But... This, once again, you know, smells like a legacy that must be extinguished with a flamethrower. We must do this on this podcast. But yeah, you know, the production budget of something over 30 million... It's funny to look at all the fuss that the budget made back in the day when you think about that in today's movies, $30 is something that won't even get you a few good stars to show up in your film. Indeed. Yeah, it would be well-produced indie film or, you know, independent film that has, has a relatively high budget. That would be $30 million, a... Ne- never to mention a huge, phenomenal Hollywood production.
0: Yeah, it took a lot of convincing to even get Marlon Brando into the movie. And uh, There were a bunch of high-level actors that turned this opportunity down. And perhaps they cannot be blamed, considering how mental the things went on set and how you would have to spend four months in the jungle, which turned into over a year.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure Have the exact number of dates ever made public, like how long the making of the film lasted.
0: Maybe the
1: original film
0: crew is not even aware how long they were there under well, who knows what kind of influence.
1: Yeah, knowing about all the medical problems that they suffer due to the stress with Coppola having epileptic seizure and... Martin Sheen suffering a heart attack from the stress of making this film and knowing the alcohol and drug consumption that happened. Behind the scenes of this film, I'm relatively sure that absolutely no one involved in this production knows how goddamn long they were in the goddamn jungle.
0: And this is only the tip of the iceberg of the chaos while they were shooting uh, this film, if we get to this. Indeed, there was Robert Redford, and also Steve McQueen and Jack Nicholson, and they all turned this role down, possibly because of the four-month shoot, which ballooned. And then there was um, even Al Pacino, who owed his stardom to the chance of Coppola giving him the rolling *Godfather*. And um, the furious director went insane, threw his Oscar statues out of the window, and uh, only one of them was saved. All the others were cracked. Then, they filmed in the rain some days and in the dry on others and they just prayed that in the end, after this considerably long shoot, they still just prayed that all of these scenes would go together in the editing booth with rain and dry land.
1: Yeah, the editing of this film took was it two years to actually edit this film together? to get the theatrical version of this film, which even is not the final version of the film as we are going to go through today because we are also touching the subject of the Redux version.
0: Yes, yeah, so it was indeed between two years and a two and a half years, somewhere around that. And they shot one and a half million feet of film, which translates into 457 kilometers of... Um, Celluloid And uh, 240 hours of footage They had also 4 editors And only 20% of the original script material remained Because FFC of Francis Ford Coppola He was changing the script as they were shooting And on some days he didn't even have any idea What they were going to shoot that day And the people got uh, obviously Kind of the idea of what was going on And people got frustrated only the tip of the iceberg, still. Well, the director threatened to commit suicide on multiple occasions. He's also on tape saying that, I believe because his wife was recording him for, like, uh, diary purposes at that time. The tapes were never supposed to be go public, but some of it at least did. And I believe it's on the documentary, uh, Heart of Darkness. About the making of this film.
1: At least there there is a picture on the IMDP page. Of Coppola holding a gun to his head. (laughs) Good going.
0: Yeah, there was the epileptic seizure. Then there was uh, the chaos with the Filipino military army. Tools which they needed to shoot the action scenes. So the military gear was on loan from Filipino military. But... Every time they were starting to shoot, they were still in the middle of shooting. The army wanted to get some of their helicopters or all of their helicopters or whatever tools they were back. And again, the shooting was uh, delayed. Well, if we go through all of this, a uh, hotel scene was shot on Sheen's 36th birthday. He was extremely drunk, quite obviously. and. I don't know about this uh, deeper state of mind or however it was promoted that he was kind of very deep inside his mind during that scene that he was in a very personal space inside his mind and uh, there were some reports that he was indeed in such a state that he might have just attacked and hurt somebody in the crew if somebody in any way aggravated him quite possible but here is where i'm already going to call something like what they could have pulled off from the get-go with this movie or at least during the filming of the movie i think i theorized that ffc had the brilliant idea that since the press is making so much fun of this filming let's take advantage of it and let's market this film as such that everything went to hell Everyone was inside like their deepest places of their mind. Some people went completely nuts, and you know, it's a good marketing for your film. To save, save yourself, save your career, save your house.
1: Yeah, I could kind of see where the argument is coming from. I'm not sure if I can fully agree with it. Knowing exactly how kind of a nightmare it became to put this film together.
0: There's also that it certainly was a nightmare.
1: Yeah. I mean, the horror stories were already running rampant while they were making this. And you have to take account that during that time when it was publicized how this is a troubled production, there still was that two years of editing ahead of them. Oh, yeah. So it would kind of be bad publicity now and then two years of radio silence while they're putting this film together and then you kind of hope that you can spin that bad publicity and the coverage you got through that into somehow you know ticket sales after you finally get the movie out of the editing booth
0: yeah, of course, I realized that this was a deeply personal project. He really wanted to get this one right. There was a lot of personal pressure and pride. And maybe I'm saying that just in some point, some interviews, this, this magical aura that they have built around this project kind of feels fake at times or kind of suspicious. For example, just simply the beginning of the documentary Heart of Darkness, it starts with an press interview. With Francis Ford Coppola, where he says that this is not a film, but this is whatever it was, uh, the real story about v- Vietnam or war.
1: Yeah, I know this. This interview, I I'm not, i not—I don't remember for sure, was it during the Palm d'Or awards or, or the festival when he gave that interview? But yeah, you had a statement that this is not a film about Vietnam War, but this shows what Vietnam was.
0: I understand fully, though, that, that there are really like elements that could have made the people feel very spiritual or highly confused, at least, on the set when they are mixing, like, yes, real bodies that somebody took out of their graves to get some <laughs> props to the set. Uh, happenings like this... As well as the fact, maybe that uh, Sheen was not told to even act in this film. He was told to be just Sheen, just be yourself, because this is about you. This is you. Actually, that's a fantastic advice for an actor. You know. And I wonder how much you can get out of your actor if you just tell them to be who they are. That's 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 great. Then well. I can see that. That that, that when you get up actor that actually is a lot like the character, well obviously, it's sometimes a um, cinematic history moment because they really get it down to the T. It
1: it, it most definitely is in this case, because whatever scene is on, on screen during the apocalypse it is pure code. And However,
0: he's not even acting like, I mean, no, that's the, not the right word, but he's not portraying really much of an emotion, perhaps. If we were to be advised to be somebody else, I am certain that there would have been more facial expressions of horror or whatever the situation might be. Then again... That's not a problem at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that yeah, it's funny, because you don't get too much from his face. But then again, you get so much, because you can feel it.
1: Yeah, the, 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 kind of a, kind of a sheen, being stoic throughout this film, is, is that is the reason why Coppola eventually cast him as the lead and fired Harvey Keitel from the role, because Coppola deliberately wanted kind of that, that stoic presence. And he wanted Sheen not to actually show that much of a reaction to what is happening during the film, because that is to highlight the point that Sheen's character, Captain Villard, is already such a dark-hearted person. Like the bad deeds that he has done are already at such a level that Villard has himself become completely desensitized to the horrors of war. And that is why the film quite often kind of a cuts to a some other member or some other soldier that is going through the same moment as Willard is, showing first, you know, those expressions of those soldiers who showcase Anxiety, fear, excitement, thrill, shows you these facial expressions and then cuts back to Billard, who is actually completely stoic and doesn't even bat an eye to everything that happens around him.
0: Yeah, but even that non expression says, I think, a lot.
1: It says extremely a lot about the, well, the dark heart mm. of, of yeah. Captain Willard, Because it is made clear from the beginning of the film that Willard himself is not a hero, and he is no way a good guy in any sense. And this is this is actually a major theme when you compare the Redux version of the film to the original version of the film, because th- this is one of the main differences that exist between the two versions, how much humanity there is in Willard. Okay.
0: Do you, can you break down what are the main differences between the redux and the original because i have only seen redux
1: uh the main differences is and and we are not now going you know every added scene but but to give you the in my opinion the three most notable changes
0: let me guess let me guess before you go i'm going to say that the french scene is perhaps entirely cut or it's very much shortened as well as uh, the dancing girls.
1: Uh, you would be very much right about that one. Uh, the French plantation if I remember correctly is completely cut. it's okay yeah yeah it's only in redux and with the dancing girls, the first scene with the playmates it exists in the in the original version. Yeah, uh, the okay. second interaction scene later on in the film when they end up in that kind of a tarnished military outpost and there is that, well, the sex scene uh-huh. and all of that, that, if I remember correctly, exists purely on the Redux version.
0: Oh, that's interesting because I thought that the surfing guy was kind of a an important part of this movie and we lose a lot from this character if we don't have that, in my opinion.
1: In a way it does In a way, no
0: Because it's kind of his breaking point, right? Because he's supposed to be this This good guy who never had anything wrong in his life And, well, it's not that I'm saying that it's wrong to have Random (laughs) sex in Vietnam But this is kind of the moment perhaps where he turns from The ordinary person into uh, To this guy who is Seduced by all, all the things that he can do during the war. Some of them not very moral.
1: And, yeah, you are correct on that one. There is, that that is one aspect that I count as a major difference between the two versions. Yeah. Because, you know, to give you kind of a three pointers, what is the main focus, in my opinion, behind the Redux version when you compare it to the original one, is that Firstly, it gives a small humane moment for the character of Gilgore. Gilgore gets more screen time in the Redux version, first one being his introduction, which is longer and more kind of a mythical in the Redux version. Willard asks the soldier of that where is the CEO and the uh, soldier remarks that he's just coming, and then you get the core shot of Gilgore landing into the battlefield. But later on, there is that moment in the Redux version where there is the Vietnamese woman running, holding her baby in her arms, and she's being followed by the soldier that is pointing her with his rifle, and at this moment, Gilgor interrupts the proceedings, he puts the soldier back on his place, takes the baby from the lady and instructs the, that the lady and the baby are being taken to the helicopter and taken to safety from the battlefield. That whole scene of him sending the baby and the mother away from the shooting, that is absent from the original version or the theatrical cut. And that, that is one of the moments which give Gilgore at least some humanity, because Gilgor is kind of an extremely bad and horrendous character on his own right, as we will point out once we fully get into the scene in question. Yeah. But that's one difference. The second one is that in Redux version, there is a lot more scenes with Willard himself interacting with the rest of the crew on the boat. In the original theatrical cut, Willard is more of a recluse hermit who just closes himself in his own quarters on the boat and does not really have moments with the other crew. And this is something that gives Willard quite a lot of humanity in the Redux version and makes him more human and not as cold and not as dark-hearted. Character as he could be and he is in theatrical version. And the third and last one, which I count as a as extremely major difference, is the inclusion of the second playmate scene or the sex scene. Because, like you pointed out, there is a notable moment in the film where the boat crew kind of uh, succumbs into this madness. At insanity and they lose themselves right and there is a quite a lot of discussion what is that point what is that point in the film where that happens in the theatrical cut it is the dolong bridge scene which is extremely easy to see why that is in the theatrical cut that famous point the point of no return Because that is the darkest scene of the film where the war is at its most insane. On the Redux version, typically that moment is is tied with a plantation scene. Once again, easy to see. Why? Because that is the last tranquil scene in the film. The last scene where the characters can just have a moment of quietness and where they can just talk for a moment and after they leave the plantation sooner or later the fog kind of uh, swallows the whole boat and when the boat finally emerges from the fog they arrive literally to the Kutzes kingdom and I actually, in my opinion the moment where that going too far, falling into insanity and losing themselves happens in the Redux version is actually the second playmate scene. Because Mm -hmm. after that moment, when they leave the playmates after having sex, after that, the group starts to fall apart and they start to picker with each other and they become more cruel towards each other. So in my opinion, in the Redux version, the second playmate scene would be the one that marks the moment when the insanity engulfs The members of the boat crew
0: Yeah, okay There is actually even more versions of this film Or actually we're talking more about Like some working versions There's a work print that is 330 minutes long And you can probably find it online somewhere Well, I haven't seen it but yeah there's even more material this includes at least some scenes that are happening outside of the hotel in saigon and there's more material of the playboy bunny's performance and some scenes that are played slightly differently yeah yeah there's a lot that they can fit into this length of a movie
1: and there has been rumors that Coppola would like to release even longer cut (laughs) of the film. Like, I, I don't know. It is years when I actually read about this. It was in Empire magazine when they touched the subject and was it then rumored that Coppola was hoping that someday he could be able to release a five hour long version of the film?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Almost 5 hours long right? So um, to be quite honest I think the Redux version also Loses its esteem In some places Already Even though I do admit That I very much like and respect The meditative quality Of this film And which also works great Even though it has kind of Separate uh, scenes happening That make it wholesome me in the end. So it's not very. Uh, should I say linear. Or traditional storytelling. Again in in that sense. Doesn't work for everybody. But then again. It just builds it's points. That it wants to say. And in the end it all kind of comes together.
1: It, it kind of comes. And well. It, it does come together. In the end. But when we are touching the ending of this film. Further down this episode it is also important to remember that there is quite a many readings on what is happening on the film and there is quite a lot of different views on what actually goes on during the film like one theory is that there actually is this physical heart of darkness and the film in the end It's about the battle between Willard and Cruz on who actually gets to possess that heart.
0: Yeah, this is kind of an interesting character again. Joseph Conrad was like a Polish-British writer, so his native language was Polish. But he became to be known as one of the most influential writers of English literature at his time. And very well known today as well.
1: Yeah, and I see why that is, having read Conrad's other works.
0: Yeah, he has a way with his words, He great vocabulary.
1: He has, and he, at times, even though he has somewhat the bad habit of lingering on these complex themes to a point where there is extremely long and complicated discussions between characters, for example, political themes, or how, for example, a single term can be understood multiple meanings. But, you mean? Yeah, but still, overall, I, I would say that when it comes saying s- some of the more kind of a complicated themes, Konrad is actually quite good at what he does.
0: There is one more point about the madness at the set that we could bring out everything else we have touched in one way or another, but then there is the Marlon Brando's appearance, and Marlon Brando being at the set of this film, it seems that, like he was maybe he was just being Marlon Brando, but he did not read the book Heart of Darkness, preparing for this role, even though he was specifically told to read The Heart of Darkness before he comes there, so he just Plainly lied that he read that. Yeah, there was that, and then there was the physical side, of course. Because Marlon Brando was supposed to be physically more fit. Supposed to be moving around the scenes, which he does not. And they tried to masquerade his appearance. That's why you see his character always in black, under darkness, not moving, or not walking so much. In the scenes where they had to show more of his body, there was a body double actually to make up for it. So he was in a pretty bad physical shape.
1: Yeah, there is you know, a whole episode can actually, could almost be done on Brando alone. Like when, when it comes down to on Apocalypse, the way they how they handled the Brando situation actually Kind of becomes one of the strengths of the film. So, in that way, mm-hmm. they managed the situation extremely well. But Brando himself, during his time, was notoriously pain in the fucking ass to work with. Yeah, like, I can imagine. Yeah, we, we we are talking about extremely egoistic actor. Or someone could say downright a diva, guy who, at the later stages of his career, refused to learn his lines or learn the script. He was supposed to play to a point where, for example, in Godfather, his lines had to be hidden in the scenes into a smaller cue cards, which he read. And Brando also was, you know, notorious for going off the script completely to a point where pretty much everything you get out of Brando in Apocalypse Now is well, Brando doing improv?
0: Yeah, uh, I was wondering how this was actually set up because Francis Coppola didn't really have a proper script because he was just rewriting it all the time. So I was wondering if we, if he wanted to give Marlon Brando a chance to improvise everything because of that, or because he just didn't care to read anything that he Coppola was writing the
1: previous night. It could be either one of those scenarios. Brando himself was not an actor that was easy to work with, especially on the later stages of his career when he had more gloat and more prestige under his name. Yeah,
0: um was he like just... He was just improvising for, say, 20 minutes straight and then they just cut the best parts out of it and tried to make it... Makes sense. (sighs) That's how you make films.
1: Yeah, in Brando's defense, Brando's strength was that he was extremely good in getting inside the heads of the characters he was supposed to play. Yeah. So in that sense, him going off the script was not the automatic dumpster fire, which it would be in the hands of a lesser actor. But Brando, since he could get in the mind space of the characters, he could actually deliver pretty good improv and something that you could still use in your film.
0: Yeah, I think it works exactly correctly because he was improvising. And to be true to Marlon Brando, he actually did read this, this book finally, but only after he arrived at the set. He read it, then he got into lengthy arguments with Francis Ford Coppola to the point of some kind of a breakdown, and then they just finally decided that the hell, now we're going to shoot. And he just goes doing his model, Brando, whatever, mumbling thing for 20 minutes. And I think he nails it. He really nails it. He understood what the book was about.
1: That he did. And he did understand what Cruz in Apocalypse was all about and what the film was all about. And especially the fact that the fact that he's improvising
0: it looks very natural. And I was just looking at this film without knowing anything about his performance and whether it was improvised or not. I just look at this performance and I'm quite floored, to be honest. It was really... You could feel that it was coming from the, the, the heart, I guess, of darkness.
1: Yeah, Marlon Brando definitely was one of those all-time great actors that you get every now and then who can deliver a performance that is more than a movie performance. All that being said, though, it has to be pointed out that, well, Marlon Brando's attitude towards basically everyone and the film itself and to his job... And kind of a, what is required from the actor, like learning your goddamn lines and reading the script you are supposed to play. Brando could make it work, but that's still kind of a big no-no. You, you can applaud for Brando for delivering extremely great performance, but you can't applaud Brando for being kind of a jackass during the production of the film. Or other films that he worked on. True. What is this movie about, Henrik? It is about a lot of different things. It's a movie that is about what you actually decipher it being about. But most and foremost of all, I would say this is about the evil inside all of us. And about how that evil is being tied into our everyday life and how society, government, war, kind of try to embrace that evil in order to make the evil men work like the institution in power, be it the government or the war itself wants you to do. It's like
0: succumbing into the heart of darkness, told... From the perspective of one guy's mind. Then again it reflects kind of everybody's mind. And how we humans are built. If we talk about other subjects there is. Well I guess we could talk about colonialism. Imperialism. We could talk about perhaps even the the religious hippie bullshit of Kurtz. We could even talk about how perhaps some of the things that he said are. Not exactly logical, or could you follow everything throughout? Maybe the meaning is so deep in his improvised performance that it cannot be downgraded.
1: I actually had no problem following Kurtz and his line of logic. Yeah, there is the fact that
0: he has taken over a tribe and he has taken the pedestal of the leader of that said tribe. And basing it on, well, I guess nothing, but even that nothing is something as he likes to share it with us.
1: Kurtz is a man who has learned to understand war extremely well, as is evident on the essay that he has written and the reports he has written, which Willard reads more snippets to the audience throughout the film which I felt pretty well actually nailed down the army and the nature of war. And uh, through this understanding, Kurtz has developed his own philosophy and own code of conduct, which has allowed Kurtz being quite dark in his heart and going off due to his understanding of war and army goes off the regulations and the codebook of the army and is able to use phenomenal cruelty when needed to. And this kind of a, allows Kurtz to elevate himself into a position of a god amongst his tribe and his kingdom. So at the end of the film, where we finally meet Kurtz, he's kind of a god. Who knows that he's about to die and who kind of accepts his own death at the hands of Willard. There is that,
0: um, but the Benjamin kind of takes a different approach. Once he has slashed Kurtz to pieces, he's not looking to gain power over the tribe. Instead, he. Is he showing humility by not leading this group into anywhere? He just leaves. There is certain logic
1: in that madness. There is. Yeah. There is logic in that. At the same time, that is also the point where Willard finally and utterly embraces his own, own dark heart. But does he? He completes his mission. We could get into this
0: later in the actual scene by scene, of course. But yeah, does he really? Because... Because he completes his mission. He came to do what he was set out to do. He's being the soldier. Or is he? Mm. And these are the kind of things you have to deal with with this movie. Yeah,
1: well, it can can be interpreted in several ways. And it has been interpreted extremely many ways. And I guess... Both you and me also have our own interpretations on what happens to Willard in the final moments of the film.
0: But I will tell you this, at least on this first viewing of this movie. Yes, call me a heretic, this is the first time that I saw this movie. This is because I generally avoid movies that are famous. At least I used to do that. Now, lately I started to actually Go through all the certain all-time classics that I always wanted to avoid. Let's say just that I've always kind of avoided the mainstream of what people do. Or people or, or never found many of the mainstream things that people gravitate towards very appealing. But uh, where were
1: we? I guess we were preparing to start the scene by scene. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. <clears throat>
0: We're just about to get actually started.
1: Yep. <laughs> and now we're into this shit, and now we are about to start.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: I guess this sums up
0: this film pretty well. This is from an analysis that I was listening. So the film is kind of about, do we accept to look for the moral betterness? So my interpretation of looking for the moral betterness is... Kind of actually, that you have a horrific event, and in your brain you try to, <laughs> to turn it to your advantage, as we people do. For example, uh, in my life, well, this is a, this this is this has this is not even anywhere near the gravitas of this movie and what it's going through. But for example, I've studied for several things. Some of the things were not very interesting. For some of those. Studying years, you could ask if that was ever worth it. But yeah, when you end those studies in the middle, or when you actually finish those studies fully, your brain will try to justify whatever you were doing. Like, you will look for the good sides. Of course, there was a benefit for you that you were studying, I don't know, industrial-level printing. Yeah, sure. Uh, It gave me some advantages, definitely advantages in media. So now I understand both media and print a little bit. But was it worth all my time? That could be argued. Am I completely tricking myself? Kind of a human survival mode hits in. You try to justify everything that ever happened in your life, right?
1: It depends on what you kind of account into everything that has happened to you. For example, you had a terrible relationship.
0: I don't know if you have had such, but let's say you did have. you're always trying to justify why that happened, and or maybe why that was worthwhile in the future you. Sure, sure, it contributes to your character, whatever you do on this planet. But is it all worth it? I don't know if this is exactly like moral betterness, but I think it's a kind of a category of it. Because moral betterness, you, you justify whatever you're doing. Killing innocent children in the streets of Saigon, because they were the enemy. Because you couldn't see what would happen next. Would that kid throw a hand grenade at your face? Just kill them all. That was, it was war. Hey, it was war. It's okay. It, it was what I was told to do. So, do we accept to look for the moral bareness, or do we reject that and turn to the primordial side that we all have? Well, I can honestly say don't do that. But there is the risk that you lose yourself. The more you experience horrific stuff, I can totally see why you would not care about some trivial shit that we experience every day. Perhaps that this is why I love some of the characters that behave in a I-don't-give-a-damn type of attitude. Such as the Clint Eastwood movie, the White Hunter Blackheart that we watched. Because there is also some quality to that, uh, or the benefits to that. It might be that if you strike the correct balance, if you get enough bad experiences in your life and you you can strike perhaps uh, like a balance in your life where you care just enough, but you care very little about some things that just take um, hours and seconds away from your life for all the wrong reasons. Scene by scene, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to
1: it finally. Ugh, okay. Hold on a moment Yep. Okay, I'm ready Okay,
0: show. Sure. I would cut this movie into certain parts First part, Saigon, in the hotel Second part, Ride of the Valkyries, or the coast attack then there is the middle part, which is dance girls jungle with a tiger, Fisher family killing the French plantation and the last third is well, Kurt's world as I call it. So let's start from the uh, first act. We're going mad in this podcast and Martin Sheen's character and Martin Sheen is going mad in the hotel room, likening the fan to a chopper.
1: Also that. There- Crossfade with Willard's head and you know the flames at the same time, almost you know completely on top of each other.
0: I really like the opening.
1: It is, it is, it's, 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 it's especially the crossfades, which are pure geniusness.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Again, very meditative, sucks you in, even though it's so slow. But that's what this movie is about, and
1: still works. Yeah, and it does show kind of a, it does make a point on how out there Sheen's character already is. since he makes the notion on how he's already unable to live the civilian life and return home. Since w- once oh, yes. he got back to his wife, the only thing he could anymore think about was just getting back into that jungle. And there has been some studies that war and the adrenaline rush that you can experience in war, it can be almost intoxicating to a point where you can actually become addicted Mm. to that adrenaline rush and therefore become addicted to war itself. And that's kind of what I would say that, that Shin's character has gone through and what has happened to him. I never got
0: that, I just interpreted it as such that he was already so broken from the war That he, as he pretty much states, I believe He had changed so much that returning home, he was not the same person anymore He couldn't just return to his normal life
1: Yep, that he is Like he says, I wanted a mission for, and for my sins they gave me one
0: Yeah yeah, alright, so then there is the interview of Sheen's character, Willard It's a really nice scene Again, uh, the way that the people are talking about Kurtz Really gives you the uh, kind of interest to keep watching forward This is truly a character that has gone terribly insane Well, already at that point you are looking for other answers in your head like is he really insane or what's really going on and this is yeah this is a excellent way to pull you in after this we get to the valkyrie scene or or the bombing scene at the beach well the valkyrie is a feminine norse mythic character apparently who decides which men will live or die in a battle and yeah it's a reference this scene is in my opinion depicting simply the American war machine. How it's very bellicose, very over the top, out of this world, trying to maintain normality by force in a situation where no normality really exists, trying to force his soldiers to uh, surf on the waves where the bombs are falling. Actually, it's pushing its point to a point where it's kind of a slightly overboard. Yeah, you, I got the feeling on that scene that, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. You're trying to make this point.
1: But that is also a point on, the scene is most of all, or I can't say most of all, because there are several points that go on in the Valkyrie scene. And the landing scene before that, which show the Gilgore kind of a military machine at its work. But these scenes are also very much about Gilgore himself. And kind of uh, making the point how Gilgore is an extremely broken person. And I, I would say he's one of the most dangerous players in the war game that is the Vietnam here. And in many ways, Gilgore actually is what they say Kurtz is. Like, Gilgore is a person who has lost his mind and mm. has succumbed in the inhuman levels. And this is something where the difference between the Redux and the original version plays a major role, because the Redux version gives you that one humane moment from Gilgore. But other than that, you know, outside of that moment, the difference between Kilgore and Kurtz is almost is that Kurtz is a devil that knows he's evil. And Kurtz's insanity, as it's called in the movie, kind of stems from Kurtz pretty factually understanding the nature of war. Whereas Kilgore, on the other hand, is a dangerous example of excess insanity, precisely in form of... Forgetting the nature of war, Gilgor is a person who fights a war, but he no longer actually understands what war is.
0: I don't know. There are people like this, military leaders that are just sort of larger than life. Or I think some people are just, yeah, some people are just plain psychotic. Some people from the army that I was in, the, or the group of the army that I was in. There are people that really, in their own words, actually, say that they hope to God that the war erupts, unquote.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. But to put it differently, in a way, Gilgore himself is embodiment of what went wrong for the United States in Vietnam. In a sense that to Gilgore, the war has become an adventure. It's fun, happy times and wackish surfing. And this is something that Gilgore has been able to achieve through over excess of military hardware.
0: Well, you know how I actually interpreted this, uh, is that he is just a big time show off. He wants his soldier to surf because... He wants to show that he's not afraid. He doesn't care. He has done this so long that he's just using it as a playground. And yeah, admittedly, he probably doesn't even care anymore at this point. As we see that some whatever the hell is dropping from the sky just next to him. And he just doesn't care.
1: Yep. Um, And that pretty much is Kilgore. Because Kilgore actually does show a blatant disregard to military code, to ranks, to common safety, anything that. And that, I would say, actually stems from the fact that Kilgore and his men, to them, the war is easy. And because of that, the downside of war, the dangers of war, they do not show up in Kilgore's radar. When you compare it to the war that Willard is going through, to Willard war is, is constant escapades and constant danger because he's on the ground level fighting with his M16. But Kilgore, on the other hand, uses fucking helicopter battalion armed with missiles and M6E3 machine gun systems. He uses this kind of gear to attack villages where there are some VC or Vietcongs armed with Kalashnikovs and this kind of a unbalance between the power levels of the two sides Gilgor's team and the VC makes it for Gilgore to score easy victories and victories that have relatively low casualties even though they do form as we see in the Valkyrie scene uh, they still are relatively small and kind of easy to avoid because you are the one who is pulling the air attack on a ground target. And because of this, Gilgor and his men do not share the same level of danger as Willard does. But in the end, because they do not have kind of a reference point, because everybody is looking from their own perspective, Gilgor's guys can actually feel and believe in their hearts that they share exactly the same danger as Willard does on the ground level when Willard is running around just holding his M16. And because victories are so fucking easy to Gilgore's guys, Gilgore and his men are kind of a constantly being rewarded through the territory that they can attain, through the Beer that Gilkor gives to his guys, the ranks that they can rise in the military hierarchy, and and the beach parties, which we see them throwing on the landed soil.
0: And you know what else? Because this uh, lieutenant colonel, he's not practically doing anything there. He's getting his guys' guns. He's just walking very sure of himself around the whole fighting scene. He's helping a Viet Cong that is injured. Yeah, he doesn't do anything there. He's just using it as a playground. Just, Well, if he's doing anything, he is giving more self-esteem for his soldiers to keep fighting, if they were indeed fighting. Somebody's fighting.
1: Yeah, that he is. Like, you can actually know this, that he's Men, kind of, uh, they almost have kind of this fatherly relationship to a point where Gilgore's boys, as they are being called, actually were exactly the same kind of a yellow scarves as Gilgore does. And to get back to the point of this being game to Gilgore, I, I think it shows extremely well when Gilgore first meets Willard, who... By his rank, he is a captain, so relatively high on the military ladder. And Gilgore just blatantly ignores Willard and couldn't be more troubled with the guy. But then again, Gilgore really does Potter dance the surfer guy on the boat, who mm. does not have the military prowess of Willard, but who is someone who can alleviate Gilgore's pastime. This legendary surfer can make Gilgor's fun times even better because now Gilgor can surf with Lance, or Lance, the surfer who he admires. And Lance is the guy who Gilgor salutes like you are supposed to salute someone in military. To Lance, Gilgor shows a real respect. Later on, the only way how. Willard can even make Kilgore advance to the point where Kilgore is supposed to take him. Willard only is able to achieve that by promising Kilgore some killer waves at the location. So <laughs> the Kilgore war is a pastime. That, in my opinion, it embodies the statement that Coppola made about Vietnam War, that in Vietnam, USA had too much money And through that money, they had too much equipment. And that excess of equipment eventually led the USA troops in Vietnam to lose their sanity.
0: Yeah, total show-off war.
1: Yeah, and in that sense, Kilgore in many ways is insane. And knowing all that,
0: Captain Willard steals the surfboard of Kilgore. How did you take this... Is there any deep meaning to this? Is he just taking some pride of, or trying to stop some of this madness, just trying to kind of give a slap in the face to this Pelagos game that he's playing?
1: To me, Willard was not trying to stop anything. It was merely getting back at Kilgore yeah, yeah. Because Willard and Kilgore did not hit it off that well.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was funny. Yeah. We get to the middle part. Dance girls. Okay, what's the point of dance girls? It's just more of this excessive military might show off.
1: Uh, to me, the dance girls are. Well, they showcase kind of a, the continuing theme in the movie, which is succumbing, firstly, the madness, and also, secondly, the dehumanization of others. This being the enemy or your friends, and eventually yourself. Like, d- during the Ride of the Valkyrie scene, the enemy is being dehumanized to a level where it's a bunch of fucking gooks and kinks, and where exploding a group of kooks is something that you get rewarded with a case of fear. So that, that is the dehumanization of, of the enemy during the Valkyries. Here in Howpath the insanity keeps on growing. It reaches the next level in Howpath and it also showcases you the next level of dehumanization where the target now is kind of the innocents and even even your friends in a one way. Because during the Valkyrie scene or with Gilgor's group, y- you could tell that that Gilgor took care of his men. No matter how how much he saw war uh, simply as a game and no matter how how little he no longer actually understood the dangers that the soldier faces in war, Gilgor still was a guy who saw one of his men getting hurt, getting his leg shot off, and immediately started to yell that what he wants is that man gotten out of the war zone. You know, get the helicopter there. I want him to the evac medical in 15 minutes. Whatever happens, you fucking save that one guy who got his leg shot off. But... In how far that, that unity between the soldiers, it's being lost. They are unified at the beginning, where the playmates first appear. But in course of the show that the playmates are pulling off, they eventually start to fight between themselves. And then they break the barriers and they start to climb on the stage. And at that point, they actually become a danger to the playmates who still are actually American civilians doing a job of entertainment in Vietnam. The playmates are actually actually the American civilians that the soldiers are supposed to keep protecting from the evil communism that must be stopped in Vietnam. And at that point, they start to dehumanize the civilians. And because of this, they become a danger to the very civilians they are supposed to protect. And they also become a dangerous effect to each other because of the fighting that happens between the soldiers. And at the same time, also, the playmate scene shows this encouraged and perverse sexualization of violence where the Playboy bunnies use the M16s, that is, the soldier's gun, in very kind of a erotic way to excite the soldiers watching the show. And if you actually watch the decorations behind the sitting area or behind the soldiers' backs where there are those huge, I guess they were made from plastic, but these huge bullets (laughs) at the far end of the area. Also, they have been shaped kind of in a sexualized manner. So there's also this theme of sexualizing violence And through sex, which to many of these soldiers are still some kind of a resemblance of home. And it's being combined with war or with violence through the the playmates using the M16 as a sexual element. And uh, this perversion kind of eventually is what leads into the violence breaking out amongst the soldiers.
0: This kind of a presentation in a country where you're having a war. To actually pretend to kind of have time for this fun and games. With insane budget, I bet. You know, you have to get all this crap out there. You have to ensure the safety of the dancers and other possible civilians. Transfer them there, transfer them back. All that effort, it's just a... It's so over the top, it's so... The heart and soul of this war, I suppose. The the, the mentality that that went into it right there. Not in the newspapers, but right there.
1: It also kind of is, is a reality of war. Because these shows is something that has been performed. Basically in every war that at least America has fought. The shows are mostly meant for as a moral boost to the troops. Yeah, sure. So that they can get that moment of, thank you, thank you for protecting us and for this work you are doing, fighting this war. And they have been part of the Second World War. They were part of Vietnam. They were part of Iraq. To a point where Hollywood celebrities were actually being flown to give a show to the troops so that that is something that does happen in war. It's even something that you know happened. I would say to you and me both when also we were in the Army, because we also got few of those evenings when we were being offered some kind of entertainment on behalf of the firm, the army. Unfortunately, I did not get playmates or strippers. <laughs> The first night was that I got was was a comedy act, which was, okay, pretty decent. Okay. The second night was uh, some touring gospel band. Once again, was pretty decent, but then again, gospel music. Not exactly my cup of tea. Weird. I, I'm more heavy music lover myself, but yeah, I guess I managed to get still one more comedy act. Yeah, I did, I did. It was... Was it Kariketon and Miller in the duo giving a solo stand-up, which was not that great. But still, you know, hey, Finnish Army and we also got this moment, you know. Giving us that one evening when we can loosen up a bit and you know get get something out of the regular program.
0: Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. It always struck yep. me as that these events, for example, Bringing a hard rock band to Army is so out of the rest of the picture that it actually kind of, I don't want to get overly philosophical about such a side tangent in this podcast because we never do that, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, to have a hard rock band in Army. And the rest of the program being extremely formal And then you get this one, two, three hours of absolute nonsense Where everybody's breaking the formation in all the possible ways And you don't have even the traditional army music What the hell happened to the army music? If you're going to be army, then at least have army music Why are you bringing hard rock hallelujah And, and some, uh, well, Nickelback type of bands Or Kayako or whatever the case is you know, uh, no, 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 no. I'm not pro army. I don't know what I am towards the army. I my brain is cut in half uh, in several directions about the whole experience. But uh, uh, no, that's 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 lacking something. It's breaking the illusion. It's breaking what they're trying to keep up in this system
1: yeah um uh, i myself if we are supposed to come out of the closet here i am quite pro army myself even though i also have extremely mixed had an extremely mixed experience during my time to a point where my mixed experience with the firm even let me kind of going against the regulation to a point where I burnt my bridges with finished defense. Okay. Yep. But I-, I kind of always embraced these little moments that we got, even though they were not anything to write home about. Have I been given the situation or the choice? I would have chosen... Playmates and TDs over the comedy acts that we were given. Most definitely would have chosen TDs over those. But, you know, for what they were worth, I still somewhat enjoyed them. And I saw kind of a meaning behind that in that extreme punishment, extreme reward culture that the army has. To me,
0: I felt... I felt so much pretentious bullshit in the
1: army. (sighs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. the bullshit definitely is there. Right The the, uh, the bullshit is also what, let me kind of, um, I don't know, finally getting fed up with the system. Like, I never grew to hate army. I, I never grew to be against the army itself. But to me, the army, in the end showed up as a as this constant paradox <laughs> or entity that is at constant paradox with itself. And I felt that that paradox was limiting me too much. And it eventually burnt me out to a point where I no longer was the best member and where I eventually got into pretty bad light. Yeah, you're, that, you're... that final handshake when I left, you know, I, I can I can tell you, it was extremely sh- chilling, chilling moment. <laughs> like, aggressions were high on that handshake.
0: So you didn't go to the retraining program. This is kind of the thing that you have to go through to kind of refresh your memory after perhaps a few years to have like an additional week or two weeks or so of Training to get your headspace back into this shit I was there and I got the call like Was it like even two years after I completed the initial bullshit? Uh, I went back They really hated my guts at the end of the show as well Of the initial show So my experience of the army itself Alright, let's go Let's go deep into this forest I never really felt any compassion to go there In the first place, I tried to push it forward and push it forward and push it forward as much as I could. Then I just finished my studies and then I had to go. I had no excuse not to go. I went and at the point I was definitely not very social. I was quite anti-social person. I didn't like people. I was going through these motions. Why am I going there? Why am I learning to kill people for six months or potentially longer? I finished the six months at the end of the... Last camp, I had listened to bullshit for so long. There was a thing that, well, (laughs) when you're in this situation that you become very antisocial and you don't really particularly like people in your life, especially when you're younger and you are pushed into this group, a lot of people and a lot of distractions. I've made a lot of stupid mistakes there, yeah. But at the end, I was so fed up with listening to this bullshit about some of the past bullshit, that I completely exploded at everybody, and told them basically to stay the fuck out of my way. I was aggressive to basically everyone. I didn't care about the consequences anymore. I was so fucking fed up. I I finished it. I definitely don't have any golden memories of those times, even now. No, there was even one who asked me, why the hell are you here, Kari, if you don't like it? Uh, because it's shorter than the other kind of service that lasts for 13 months, the civilian service Basically you could say that the main reason that I went there in the first place after all was to just prove to that everybody can go there because I felt that he was of the mind that, that no, no faggot can complete the army because they are such ladyboys that it's not possible This was a remark made by my aunt actually Like how can the little curry survive in the army because he's such a bam bam boy or whatever the comment was So these kind of things that just fueled me even further Like fuck you This is not a place where you make men into men It's the biggest kindergarten of Finland
1: Yeah, don't know what to say It's quite sad to actually hear that, you know? I (laughs) I don't know if it's sad, it's just hilarious to think back
0: that I would even consider the option to go there just to please somebody else or to show off.
1: Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but the, the hill should never, in my opinion, be that high to climb as it has been to you. Yeah. Those are things that should not be thrown in anyone's face. Yeah, I yeah
0: understand So many people are, especially at that point If they are about to join the army at the earliest age of 18 There are people who are just completely not fit for the task Because their state of mind is completely somewhere else They are not prepared for that, they are not even mature enough They are just a waste of fucking time They should go back home, think about it maybe 10 years Then try it out if they feel like it the worst thing you can fucking do is to get people in the army that are completely unmotivated and are potentially in that situation forced to be there, completely dangerous to everyone else.
1: Yeah, that it is. I don't think
0: I was ever, ever dangerous. I was just pissed like a...
1: No, but, but... But there are also those people. Like, I also, when I did my time, when I served, I served with some... Real fucking Latvaka, <laughs> who were in no way had the mental capacity to actually, you know, to even take care of themselves. Never to mention, actually be put into a situation where they are holding explosives <laughs> or, or holding live firearms. Yeah, you know. At the same, yeah, you know, at, at the same space with other people.
0: You have to face the fact that you are with some unknown people who are complete dummies as well. No, I. Yeah. You must have seen a lot.
1: I did. I did see my share. I don't know how it compares to everybody else's experiences. But
0: you know, yeah. At the same time, even though it was not a very pleasant experience at all, my time in army. I understand the need to having an army, of course, in the world that. We live in, I'm not particularly patriotic. I just look at it more in a practical sense, of course, that if I have to defend the fucking place where my house is and where all of my family lives, then okay. That's the last effort to salvage that by going to war. But going to army, the idea of going to learn how to kill people, because that's what it is, and nobody still wants to hear it, I don't know why, because that's what it is. And all this military parades, all this bullshit showing off or showing your equipment. I never understood that. I never understood that. It, it, it almost reminds me of North Korea. North Korea showing their military march is exactly that. It's just showing off your ammunition, what you're capable of. And <laughs> that's some kind of a remnant from the World War times that we should abolish. Anyway. Yeah. what What is being pro-army? What does it mean to you?
1: To me, like you, I understand the need for army in a violent world. When it came to killing, you know, when it came to the bad stuff, I I was okay with that. Actually, all of that kind of ties into that side of army which I fell in love with. As, as ashamed I'm, I might be to say it, but but that that was that was what I was looking for. N- knowing. What I'm going to get. Is it the pride? It it wasn't that. It was like, I I can't fully ever explain it. I haven't been able to explain to my family either. Mostly I just, you know, stay quiet. I kind of went there to look for my place to maybe make peace with my demons and to understand them better, to understand what I'm capable of. Okay. Yeah. In those situations, and yeah, I did actually manage to face them. I did learn about them a hell of a lot. Yeah. It turns out that in some ways, I was maybe too dark and maybe too methodical, even for the army itself, to a point where kind of the levels I was capable of thinking wise were too much for the army and like I must you know stress I never was a threat to anyone and I never hurt anyone and it, it was nothing like that but there were instances like there was this <laughs> where I was actually being told that you know the this is not acceptable line of thinking from you I actually <laughs> right then and there because it. Logically thinking wise it was hell of a lot easier choice and that also got me in in incredible trouble.
0: Well, I can see why you got into trouble. But but Henrik, it is probably this whole experience grew your character or you became more self-aware or or self-conscious or more brave to face other people. That's I can believe that.
1: At least I ke- became a hell of a lot more self-conscious. I also became hell of a lot more conscious about the army as an institution and how it works. And also the problems that the army has within itself. <laughs> but that yeah. was kind of the side which I was okay with. And the side which I had immediate, enormous problems with. Well, like with you, you know, the parades and all oh, that publicity side which goes hand in hand in Finnish military and all that bullshit. That was the one that burned me out. And also the major paradox, which actually I got pretty well fed up with. Like They demanded you that you are this machine, you are the clock in a complex system doing what you are being told, and you are this extremely well-trained killer. And at the same time, they demand you that you are the most huckiest, muckiest little this sip or skip because the mothers need to have their darling sons back when it comes to holidays mm-hmm. and that's that's something that really burned me out eventually one thing I
0: wanted to still bring out about the whole experience is that that suggests that the real war situation would be also extremely extremely slow in its development yeah it probably is like that and not not like in the hall. Of course, you have to go through all the strategies and what's your next strike and where do you go and there's a hell of a lot of walking and walking, walking, waiting, waiting, waiting. And so it's not that kind of a constant battle that you could or the constant advancement during the battle that you would get from the movie sphere.
1: No, actually, something that repeatedly has been brought up in the statements of the real life veterans about various combats. Okay. and conflicts, is the enormous amount of boredom that they go through in the combat. The the Vietnam veterans cursed their boredom, and Mm -hmm. there is statements that in Vietnam, the boredom was kind of this own individual brand of boredom, where you are bored as shit most of the time, and just the moment when you are... At the high peak when you are you are as bored as you can possibly be. At that point, actually, some kind of a conflict happens and you have to react like like that. And then, then the conflict is resolved and then you slowly get bored again. And also, you know, the veterans of Iraq war also repeatedly stated their problem with boredom.
0: Yeah, okay. And being bored. That's the reality of war for you.
1: Yeah. Especially on this time of goddamn drone warfare when, you know, you are just getting bored in some camp with your small battalion and all of a sudden there is a drone from somewhere carrying something and, you know, that takes you out and you never even see what you hit you. Well, we skipped over the tiger scene. This tiger was brought
0: to the set. And it had not been eating for a week. And then it was being offered some of the actors for dinner. (laughs) As far as the philosophy goes, that's
1: all yours, Henrik, if any. Well, actually, I unfortunately have to disappoint you here, because I don't have anything that remarkable to say about the tiger scene. Yeah, just one more chaotic
0: scene in the movie to amplify the emotions,
1: I guess. Well, if you compare it, once again, Redux with the theatrical release, well, uh, first and foremost, the tiger scene does give you, once again, Willard interacting with a member of the boat crew, and it does give you some humanity to the characters, Willard and the chef. But more notably, there is the point that, During the tiger scene, Willard fires his M16. He shoots at the tiger. Mm. And that is important in the sense that if you would go with the theatrical release, which removes the tiger scene, in that case, Willard shoots only one round in the entire film. He fires only once his weapon, and that would be when he executes the injured civilian later Uh, in the film.
0: Right, a 14-year-old boy. Or is he 14 in this character? But Lawrence Fishburne is 14 here. Was he 17? 14. Okay. Well, I believe this was shot in May. Maybe. At, At the youngest, he's 14. At the oldest, he's 15. There was one part in some documentary or video that said that he's 14. Or at least that's how I remember it. God damn, I'm so thorough in this podcast that I keep boring everyone by being so fucking accurate, but this is how I remembered it. Anyway, fourteen or fifteen.
1: Holy shit. That's young. I I then mixed up his real age with the age of his character. Yeah. In that case. But but well, you know shit. Because if the rumors are true, Young Lawrence Fishburne did manage to create a drug addiction during the shooting of this film. So, at the youngest, we have a fourteen-year-old addict. And
0: that—that's—that's that's not only marijuana; it also includes regularly scheduled programming such as alcohol, but also cocaine, speed.
1: Yeah, at oldest fifteen.
0: I don't know if he was ingesting this stuff, but this was what was happening at the set on the whole.
1: Yeah, I... I, well, Once again, I, I'm not crossing my heart on this one, since this is secondhand information, but I've come to understand that young Lawrence himself did also ingest that shit, and not just marijuana.
0: And you know what else? Young Lawrence Fishburne also most likely did not understand what his role was supposed to be even in this movie. Well, you could say that, actually, for his part it didn't matter. But the overall sense of the movie... Heck, watch the documentary, our listeners, watch the documentary Hearts of Darkness. The medicamp. When they get to the swampy condition, which one of the characters I believe calls a shithole. They come to the camp, and out of still out of the kindness of his heart, is it? that Captain Willard gives some fuel to the camp so they can get out of this terrible place.
1: Yeah? Yeah, he gives the fuel to the head of the Playmate tour. Most likely he gives the fuel for the helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Which the Playboy group is using so that they can fly themselves the hell out of there. Yeah. Okay, so there's
0: still an act of normality right there. And they go over the edge, perhaps after this scene. Especially when they're shot from the boat side of the river.
1: Yeah, the... The curious point with with this second Playboy Bunny scene is that right after they leave the camp, they immediately start to pickle with each other. Jeff starts to tease, clean about clean being a virgin, and from that point onwards, they all, you know, start to, all their character interactions and what type of characters they are, they start to slowly change. And that happens right after they they actually manage to have sex with the boy bunnies. So the camp is kind of a both physical point, it's a dark, unknown and and to me it kind of looks like that that small human and tender moment with the playmates kind of a uh, removes this shield that these characters have had emotionally which has still kind of protected their humanity in amidst all this insanity and if it's that the humanity which they receive from the Playboy Playmates kind of crashes with the realities of war that surround them constantly in Vietnam. And kind of that clash would be too much to them, so much that it pushes them into a breaking point mentally. Because also something to note after this point is that after they leave the camp and after everyone in the boat crew starts to act more and more like jackasses, and the kind of a descent into madness starts to build up. The only one who kind of stays the same, the same character who he has been from the beginning of the film, is the character of the chief, the leader of the boat crew, who also from the group is the only character who refuses to, you know, to use that chance to have a sexual interaction with the playmates.
0: Very interesting.
1: Yeah. To him, Willard makes the point that he has made the deal about the playmate of the year, (laughs) so that they can have the playmate of the year and have sex with her. And even after that, the chief says that, no thanks, and stays with the boat. And he's the one who most... Keeps his sanity intact. From this group of people. I would imagine
0: that in a real situation. This would be a very hard code to maintain. But if you so choose. You really have to concentrate on deciding so. That you will not succumb to the dark elements. During the mayhem. You you really have to have some not strong morals. You need to have a really... Rigid self discipline.
1: Yeah, and in the end, in the course of the story, in the course of the film, that kind of uh, turns into the downfall of these characters. Yeah. Like at the very end of the film, the character of Lance, who from the whole group is the one who goes most out of the edge, who most wants to hang with Willard, being the sole member of the crew who volunteers to go with Willard in the Dulong Bridge scene and who through all this kind of most becomes in contact with his own darkness. He, he's the character that goes most of the edge and becomes most insane of the entire bunch of the boat crew. And at the same time, he's from the boat crew, he's the only character that actually makes it through the movie. Everyone else eventually loses their life except to billard and lance
0: the definition of madness depends on your definition of madness does he really go over the edge or does he not in the sense that is there something fundamental to learn from the experience of seeing torture to the amount where you quote unquote lose your mind do you lose your mind or do you get a a better understanding Of yourself, of the world.
1: Well, he starts to wear constant combat makeup as the only person of the group. Mm. He also starts to make these weird dance moves, similar to what Willard does in the uh, opening scene of the movie in the hotel room. Mm. Like that, the three characters who who dance do these. This weird kind of a dance move. So first it's Willard in, when he's drunk and in his hotel room. Then it's Lance on top of the boat as they are going down the river. And at finally it is the one serviceman who they had sent in to Kill Kurtz right before they sent Willard. Those are the only three characters that do these dance moves. And Lance also kind of a kind of a embraces or loses himself to his own evil, to his own heart of darkness. As seen in that one scene where Clean finally gets shot and dies on a boat, and everybody else is mourning over Clean, is shocked that Clean is dead. Except, of course, Willard, who is already completely desensitized to the horrors of war and does not care. And Lance, who at that moment only cares about the puppy who has gone missing during the same shootout. This is the at least
0: the final turning point, where there's going to be a lot of schism between the characters. Yeah, about the puppy, about the shooting, where the conflict erupts.
1: Yeah, uh, you are talking about that moment when they accidentally shoot that civilian boat. Yeah, this is where
0: they save the puppy and shoot everybody else.
1: Uh, Yeah, that also is pretty much the no turning back moment physically for these characters because they've actually committed a war crime by opening fire against unarmed civilians. Or maybe they could have explained that one away as a miscalculated situation. But after the point that Willard goes off, And blatantly executes the one injured woman, still an unarmed civilian. After that, basically the entire group is tied with Willard's war crime. After that, they really no longer can go back. Because now they are actually war criminals. Also this puppy. I found this uh, very
0: general model of puppy in america to bring the point very close to home like here's what you have left of your family or such
1: yeah also something that is interesting to note after this scene or after the camp scene is that this is also the moment where the character of kurz starts to evolve and advance both in pictures and in presence before this, when Willard has looked at the pictures of Kurtz in his notes, they have been these service pictures where you can see Kurtz's face and they are extremely detailed in that sense. But after this moment, when Willard looks at Kurtz's pictures, Kurtz is involved in shadow where you can only see his features. And in that sense, Kurtz... Starts to become this looming dark presence Or kind of a void of a man That beckons the the boat crew and Willard to him Mm. Yeah this
0: uh, kill scene goes into Kind of the heart of darkness in this case literally There's the war zone The soldiers are going into the river In order to try to get to the boat That is passing by the river this was apparently some kind of a biblical reference. People in the river. Well, you know, Henrik, I'm I'm totally waiting, I'm looking forward to the episode where we go through something like I don't know Ben Hur. And as a background work, I have to read the fucking Bible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, when when it comes to that, I. I guess I'm going to cheat and only read the manga version of the Bible.
0: <laughs> Have you heard the Bible? The best goddamn version. It's a book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, 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 that is 100% accurate.
0: <laughs> I never actually got around reading it. It's still standing on my Kindle. It's waiting for the major task of me actually finishing the Old Testament, then moving on to New Testament, the actual Bible, in fact, and then reading this best goddamn version to get kind of the best laughs out of that. I don't know if I will ever finish that project. Stay
1: tuned. Well, we know that you have finished it when the Ben Hur finally (laughs) shows up on our to-do list. Awesome.
0: I like the line in this scene about the who's in charge here. Willard asks, hey soldier, do you know who's in command here? And the soldier responds, yeah, and that's all. After thinking about it, it sounds like a reference to God.
1: I I took it that he actually was the man who was to be in charge of the situation.
0: Okay, because I read it as that the person who was in charge is actually dead. And then he has just this empty response.
1: Yeah, yeah, could be, could be. It it can be interpreted in many ways. I took notice the fact that from all the soldiers in the Dulong Bridge, he's the one who has actually a necklace. He has kind of this tribal symbol of leadership on him. And that also combined with how casually he just states that he does in fact know who is in charge. So... From those, I took it that he actually was the commanding officer at the Dulong.
0: Yeah, I'm looking for deeper references in this movie wherever I can.
1: Yeah, but again, you know, Dulong itself is also a extremely deep reference showing the everyday soldiers' degeneracy through the horrors of war. When you look at the scene after they land at Dulong, the lights and the music that plays at the background give you kind of this circus-tent feeling. Mm-hmm. And the soldiers at Tulong have quite obviously lost their minds to the point where they are all staring at the emptiness. Yeah, that's shooting everywhere. Yeah, shooting everywhere, not even showing you the actual target. The one machine gunner is just shooting into the darkness. Yeah, yeah. If we go with the theme of dehumanization and look it at that like that the Valkyrie scene would be the first step where they dehumanize the enemy and the first playmate scene would be them dehumanizing the civilians, the ones they are supposed to protect, and their home in that sense... Well, at the Doolong, they are finally kind of dehumanizing themselves. Like now they are becoming dehumanized. And
0: Chief Phillips doesn't want to continue from this point onwards, but they continue into the territory of Columbia in the direction of it. And Lawrence Fishburne's character, Clean, dies. He's just one more in the cannon fodder, after which we get to the Redux scene, the French plantation. And oh
1: boy, oh boy. Yeah, Yeah. it's a doozy. Yeah, oh boy.
0: French plantation. (sighs) Well, the French were fighting there, yeah. And after putting so much effort into whatever they were doing, cultivating their land, building their houses, staying there with their families or their loved ones, they refused to face defeat. And they continue living there. And they state that this is their home. They stay there because they fought to be there. They made the efforts in the land. And that's just kind of what it is about. But the whole setup is kind of a, gives this kind of a mental image of those people. Because it seems that everybody went through some kind of a shock. Or it's just some kind of a military or the French pride. They refuse to go because they don't want to face. The defeat.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Because, yeah, the fear of defeat definitely, I would say, is something that is holding that French French family at their plantation, even though uh, there is a goddamn war going on.
0: Hmm, yeah. yeah, there's something psychotic, like mass craziness
1: in this scene. There is. Also, this is the scene where they most talk about theories behind what caused the vietnam war yeah and at this point our lead character willard
0: has passed some certain point that i don't know if he's even anymore listening he's just he's listening but he's tired he's
1: tired he He is at this point the only thing he truly cares about anymore is getting to face courage and the face, kind of the end of his mission, which we have waited
0: in the audience in this movie like forever. Let me say that this scene, at the very least, at this point, it was something that kind of started to drag the mood. Here, it it was getting a little bit too much of a drag. It just started to get a little repetitious. It was just way too long. At this point, I did lose some of my
1: concentration here for a moment. I remember you that. mean the plantation?
0: Yeah, the French
1: plantation. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> the French plantation scene is something that is known to be one of those make it or break it moments of the film. Mm-hmm. You are definitely not the first one from whom I've heard that at the French plantation. They yeah. finally started to fall off from the movie and they kind of started to shut down and it became harder for them to concentrate on following the film.
0: Yeah, perhaps it's because we just had this war zone event and we had this argument, do we go on or do we not go on? And then they go on and then you start to wait for the Kurds, but they have one more goddamn stopover with the Frenchies. And then you start to get to the end.
1: Yeah, that it is. Although I can say from experience, having seen through the, the Redux version before, in my experience, the French plantation scene starts to go easier for you after the first viewing of this film. Yeah, I bet. don't know what it is. It's like very dreamy. It has a very dreamy quality about it. It most definitely has. It also has this kind of a very surreal structure in the way how the dialogue works here. Like, to give you the example, in the first dialogue exchange between Willard and the owner and the head of the plantation, there is that Willard immediately states out that one of their men is dead. And this is the first thing that Willard says, to the plantation owner. One of our men is dead. And the plantation owner remarks that we French pay respect to our fallen allies. And that is immediately followed by the plantation owner stating that this plantation, this is the plantation of our family and it will be until we are all dead. So it starts from, we are immediately stating kind of a weird thing to say that's the first thing that you say. One of our guys is dead. And then it jumps into the plantation owner explaining to Billard immediately that this is our family plantation and we are not fucking leaving this plantation. We are willing to die here on this plantation. And this type of dialogue structure kind of a, follows through the entire scene. Also seen in the dining table conversation that they had. And for example, in the remarks that basically the conversation is the plantation owner just explaining things to Willard, but other members sitting of the plantation, sitting at the table, make these one-off remarks every now and then in the middle of the conversation and one by one leave the table. There is this weird structure on how the dialogue works here at the plantation.
0: There's an interesting piece of dialogue when Willard is with the woman of the house in the bed. And the woman remarks that all that matters is that you are alive. You are alive, Captain. But yeah, does it matter what matters? Is there any method, as is remarked later in this movie?
1: Also the scene where they actually give you... This idea of different types of communism, which is something that the movie has not shown previously, where basically the entire Viet Cong and all communism is seen as one. Like there is just one type of communism and every VC exhibits that one type of communism. And here at the plantation... It is kind of stated that, that the Vietnamese communism would be different from, for example, Soviet communism or Chinese communism. Yeah. Taking into account that the war in Vietnam was for the America, it was about preventing the spread of communism. And in this point of time, the communistic enemy was the Soviet Union. So to America Communism was Soviet communism, or that's how they experienced communism. It is what happened and was in Soviet Union. So if we would go with this remark given here at the plantation scene about all these different types of communism, it would kind of mean that Americans in Vietnam would be fighting against wrong communism, because it wouldn't be the Soviet enemy ideology That they would be against, or they are against, they are against Vietnamese version of communism.
0: Yeah, I haven't thought about that. But just the fact that this is one of the earliest, I believe, Vietnam films, so there was some opposition for even the idea that you would do a Vietnam movie, which is actually not favorable in any way to Americans.
1: Yeah, this was also during that time when the filmmakers started this push against the idealized version of the Vietnam War. From this era also comes Platoon, which also criticizes extremely strictly the American involvement in Vietnam and also Full Metal Jacket.
0: Yeah, yeah. Full Metal Jacket. Haven't seen it in a long time. Do you think it's worth covering in this podcast?
1: Yeah, sure. Why not? Even though, you know, if I would have to pick my favorite of the three, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, and Platoon, I'm most and foremost a Platoon guy. Okay. To me, uh, Full Metal Jacket has always been, if I would rank these, one, two, three, Full Metal Jacket would be the three.
0: Yeah, I I was really young when I watched it. It was one of the VHSs in my dad's collection. I remember that I was Disappointed by the ending. That's all I can remember about it.
1: I was too. I was too. Especially seeing how long it takes it uh, at the boot camp. Yeah. And then when they finally leave the boot camp to Vietnam, the whole Vietnam is kind of a over and done with in what feels like in a matter of minutes. And then the end credits come.
0: Yeah, it was kind of... One of those forbidden things. I was not allowed to watch this movie, so it kept intriguing me, and then one night I just watched it. But have you seen Aguirre, Wrath of God? Apocalypse Now is also based on Aguirre, Wrath of God. Forgive me if I'm not saying it correctly, but it's a movie from 1972. About... Yeah, in the 16th century, uh, the Don Lope de Aguirre leads a Spanish expedition in search of el dorado and everything goes kind of like in this apocalypse now in the sense that everybody goes through their own version of madness until there's only one man standing and that's the film this is like a psychological chaos
1: yeah you are talking about the werner herzog film if i'm correct uh correct yeah yeah that was uh, pretty good pretty good but
0: um This is the best moment, I think we should move on to the Kurtz's world, as I call it The last third, they finally arrived to Kurtz There's one guy remaining on the boat when they arrived to Kurtz's world And he has been instructed by Willard that he has to make the radio call To unleash the bombing attack on the region if he doesn't report in time And he doesn't, he is starting to make the radio But off-screen he is killed in the most ruthless way. Head is cut off. And the final madness is here. There's the reporter that is fanatical about Kurtz. And once we get this mandatory kind of introductory, what Kurtz is about, according to the reporter, who has also lost his mind apparently, thinking Kurtz is some kind of a god figure, well, Willard finally gets to the base of the beast and we have this extremely memorable dialogue right off the bat when Marlon Brando is on the screen the dialogue about where kurt says are my methods unsound i don't see any method at all sir holy crap this this is you can really feel this moment maybe my favorite moment of this
1: movie yeah and it, this is also an interesting point in film If you would take the reading of Kurtz being this godlike being, or being something more than a man, this looming presence that kind of is above Willard and his group as they start the manhunt. Because here Kurtz manifests almost godlike understanding on what is about to happen in near future. He knows everything about Willard when they first meet, even before Willard actually says anything. The whole dialogue exchange opens with Kurtz calling Willard by his name and making remarks how he knows everything there is about Willard. And Willard even makes the notion that it feels like Kurtz knows everything that is to happen even before Willard himself knows it. And also in here at the compound, Kurtz is constantly being filmed. Kind of like this shadowy presence. He's all the time in the shadows.
0: Yeah, it was not the initial plan, but it was to hide Marlon Brando's face.
1: Yeah, but it also gives him... It does. Yeah. There is kind of this outwardly presence on him. Especially in that one scene after he has started to torture Villard, And Villard has been in the bamboo cage and he's taken inside and given some water to drink. And Villard turns his head to the side and sees Kurtz there briefly. And at that moment, it's extremely beautiful shot where you have the side posture of Brando. There's that sliver of light lighting a small piece of him. Otherwise, he's engulfed in the shadows. Yeah. There's this tiny lingering fog that you can see in that sliver of light. And it's almost like Kurt himself would be made out of the fog.
0: Kurt tells of, like, incessant collapse. But is it in this movie or is it in the book that he said that this is something that a human needs not to experience as it will only hurt them. But, uh, The main points are that a society can function under fear and self-control and keeping up the social system norms. And that's an interesting point. Like, is the society that we live in a kind of a smokescreen for what you should be? Maybe not a murdering tribe leader, but to understand these facts. And what about the quote that he says? The famous quote The horror the horror. Is it what we are as human beings fundamentally? Savage beasts? Is that what we should then be or should we fight against it? Should we be what we can be or should we succumb to our animal instincts?
1: Yeah it it kinda depends on how you interpret or what is your reading on this last act of the film. Honestly, I don't know what my reading should be. Yeah, because there is a there is a
0: lot of ways to take it. Well, the easy way to take it is that he is explaining the nature of humanity, but it would take too much time in this podcast to think for the alternative.
1: Well, one alternative that has been presented, like I mentioned previously, is that at this point, The Heart of Darkness is an actual thing. Like, there there is a thing that is the heart of darkness. And Kurtz possesses it, which... Carvo would explain, for example, the fact that Kurtz seems to have the precognition on what is going to happen, and that he is going to die at the hands of Willard. And also the fact that even though Kurtz does not, as far as, as is known... Does not speak the local dialect of the tribesmen that that inhabit the area. He still has somehow managed to collect them under his command to have his own militia. And in this reading, that would be, you know, because of this Heart of Darkness. Because Kurtz possesses it. So that gives him the power over other people who have succumbed into the evil, who have become evil men and women, but who yet are not evil enough so that they could challenge Kurtz and take the heart of darkness for themselves. And that's kind of what Willard is, because in the end, Willard is pretty much everything that Kurtz is, minus the philosophical understanding of war. But that's something that Willard has to read and take into himself as he travels to meet Kurtz. But otherwise, uh, Willard is actually, from the get-go, from the start of the film, Willard is a murderer. Same as Kurtz, as they remark when Willard is given his mission, when they ask Willard, has he actually murdered the tax collector? And Willard, of course, denies it, but his superiors, who make, makes the question, already knows that that has happened. And that is the same crime that they are blaming Kurds. They justify the assassination of Kurds by stating that he's gone mad and, as a proof of that, is the murder of the four Vietnamese. Willard is a murderer sent to murder another murderer. And in that vein, they are both the same, Willard and Kurtz.
0: I kind of took that Heart of Darkness means that there is complete emptiness inside you. But if you take that emptiness and then you look at what uh, Kurtz does, he's leading his tribe. And he has a method actually to his madness in the sense that (laughs) the method is to kill everybody that he doesn't like, right? Yeah. So in that sense, he's still clinging on to some logic, even though he should, at this point, have none.
1: I don't know. I mean, in many ways, I see that Kurtz has a lot of logic in what he does. The thing is that what Kurtz does is inhuman and is incredibly evil, but it is methodical. It's not chaotic and it's not without a reason. There is a philosophy behind Kurtz and there is a reason behind what he does. The problem just is that what he does is completely horrendous. And he keeps reading some.
0: He has some interest in following some code. That's why I brought out the fact that he seems kind of religious.
1: He does. At first, there is the poetry book, where is the poem The Hollow Men, which Kurtz reads to his followers, from which. Actually, interesting to note, if you read the actual poem, The Hollow Man, you would notice that in his reading, Kurtz leaves out the first two lines of the poem, which goes like, Mr. Kurtz, he dead, a penny for the old guy. Mm -hmm. That is something that Kurtz knows that is in the poem as he has it in front of his eyes and he chooses to leave it out other books that he has he does have what is the gilded path or something like that which is if i've understood correctly is eastern mysticism and he also yeah, yeah. has holy bible in his book <laughs> collection man of faith well at least man of culture and also going with the bible here something that also is kind of interesting to take note is that The code word to make the contact to the backup forces which are supposed to finally bomb Kurtz's compound is Almighty. So basically when they finally call the bombing of Kurtz's compound after he is dead, they symbolically are calling Almighty to destroy the compound. And the way how Almighty does this is once again through violence, by bombing Kurtz's compound into ash and killing everybody. So if you would take that Christian reading of what happens, it's, it could be said that they ask God to stop the carnage that man creates and God does this through violence. The wrath of God, a la Old
0: Testament.
1: Yeah, smells like napalm. There is the speech
0: of Kurtz at one point with the kids And then his meditative hmm, Marlon brando asks speech about what he believes in If anything Yeah, this is a long one Maybe we should go through this because it's so central in this movie Well the quote is I've seen horrors Horrors that you've seen But you have no right to call me a murderer You have a right to kill me. You have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me. It's impossible for words to describe what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means. Horror. Horror has a face. And you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. I remember when I was with special forces. Seems a thousand centuries ago. We went into a camp to inoculate some children. We left the camp, and after we had inoculated the children for polio, and this old man came running after us, and he was crying. He couldn't see. We went back there, and they had come back and hacked off every inoculated arm. They were there in a pile, a pile of little arms. And I remember I... 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 cried. I wept like some grandmother. I wanted to tear my teeth out. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I want to remember it. I never want to forget it. I never want to forget. And then I realized like I was shot. Like I was shot with a diamond. A diamond bullet right through my forehead. And I thought, my god, the genius of that. The genius. The will to do that. Perfect, genuine, complete, crystalline, pure. And then I realized they were stronger than we because they could stand that these were not monsters. These were men, trained cutres. These men who fought with their hearts, who had families, who had children, who were filled with love, but they had the strength, the strength, to do that. If I had ten divisions of those men, our troubles here would be over very quickly. You have to have men who are moral, and at the same time who are able to utilize their primordial instincts to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgment. Without judgment. Because it's judgment that defeats us. Yeah, that's it.
1: Yeah, and...
0: Here Kurtz makes the point that you have to make a friend with horror. So... He has made friends with horror. Maybe he means at the time of his death that he's facing the horror very much eye to eye. At least right now when he is dying. The ultimate horror. His friend horror.
1: Could be also... It's a valid take on... Mm-hmm.
0: And he cried, but he was shot with a diamond bullet, figuratively speaking, of course. And he thought that it was a genius thing, the will to do that killing, I suppose.
1: More than that, the ability to kind of uh, turn off your humanity. Because, you know, hacking off children's arms is extremely inhuman act to do. Especially like... It's kind of a hint here that the ones who did that were fathers, possibly hacking off the arms of their own children. So it's extremely uncomprehensibly cold act to do. But if you could go to that level, if you could do those kinds of acts, you could also do things that, like Kurt says, with 10 divisions of that kind of men, the war would be over pretty soon
0: the war would be over but it's
1: still looking at
0: the concept of life through the lens of war giving a resolution to war which i understand because he is coming from that perspective that particular frame of reference but the genius of that is it genius or is it just people who have lost something in themselves you have to have that mentality to solve some wars maybe not to hack children to pieces but that attitude Against your enemy yeah okay but to call it genius and then just kill people randomly in that sense there is no
1: method I actually disagree there and you know this once again goes into you kind of my own experiences in the army that whole thing of seeing through the eyes of the soldier as they say but I actually do see genius in that in that inhuman cruelty. Sure, it's kind of an incomprehensible act and and something that should never happen. Okay, but if I look at it, I
0: try to look at it from Kurt's perspective what is the end game? Because there is a method, then there is probably an end game. What is that I get out of this?
1: What you get out of that is people, is men who are capable to commit extremely evil. And extremely cruel acts. And even even to their loved ones, if need be. So ultimate protective force for him.
0: Yeah? Is that what you're going for?
1: No. I'm going for effectiveness. Kurt makes notion previously uh, through one of his essays that Willard reads that as long as soldiers value Cold beer, hot food, and rock and roll. They will stay dilettantes at war and tourists in Vietnam. What Kurt sees here in these men who can hack off the arms of children, he sees complete opposite of that. These are, in his point of view, in his philosophy, these are soldiers. These are no longer dilettantes of war. For example, Gilgore Skies. Who love the beach parties. Okay. And therefore, yeah. I get that. That's good for them. But
0: what is he searching with this? What's the purpose of even having your group of people? Just out of admiration of such brutal behavior? No. To give protection to yourself even when you don't
1: really care to live? No. uh, The point of having them would be... Like Kurtz points out, 10 divisions of that kind of men and the war in Vietnam would be over pretty fucking fast. But so what? Well, you know, we are talking about soldiers here. So it's not about the end game, what comes after after the conflict, after the war. It's about the war itself and effectiveness in war.
0: So what remains is the drive to just kill people randomly. To kill people that you view as your enemy not because you
1: just want to win. Not to kill because of hatred. To kill because that's what a soldier do. In that act of hacking off those arms, it's not about hatred. It's, It's done because it has to be done. And to soldier, pretty much, that is what being a soldier eventually comes down to. The, the soldier war is not about hatred. It's about doing what you are being told. Like it was said when I was in the army, feelings are a luxury of the civilians, and hatred mm. is a feeling. Soldier kind of has to be or should strive to be outside of that emotional thinking, should be methodical, code yeah but act as is being told
0: but the sense of that you have been already a soldier and you have abandoned your army to build your own army in the jungle with some tribes people and uh, you're still clinging on to being a soldier even though you really don't have an end game for it and even if you're not looking for it why are you being a soldier why are you playing a soldier because so because it's a mental illness right that's all it boils, boils down to
1: you you can see it as a mental illness or you can see it as you know being a soldier there need no be another point and you know continue being a soldier but you
0: have already abandoned your soldierness after leaving the army basically
1: you have abandoned the army which you see unfit. And uncapable of meeting the standards that you put to being a soldier.
0: At which point, you take one little part of the jungle with some tribespeople and try to keep control there, and that's all you do.
1: You basically become the big boss of Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> You're having your own army, a nation without borders. Because, actually, more than Big Boss in Metal Gear Solid 5, Kurtz is more of an army without borders and without a nation.
0: Yeah, there is something appealing that maybe every soldier, well, some soldiers can find in it. You know, getting fed up with these people and uh, going with your own attempt, whatever it is. In my opinion, nothing. (laughs) Uh, uh. The guy sits on his ass in the jungle Well, in this movie anyway But in the book he's traveling sometimes around Well, uh, oh, okay The reporter also says in this movie That he's not here, right? But then he's in his temple thing He sits there on his ass Just says some philosophical And controls this tiny little area With no particular end game, But just to be the soldier Okay, fine
1: I, on the other hand Can... Acknowledge and even relate to Kurtz's philosophy and viewpoint. (laughs) To, To a point, I hope. I'm not sure about that, unfortunately. I've never been tested enough because we live in a time of peace and hopefully we will never see war in Finland. But would that happen, you know? I don't know. I do recognize in myself fragments of something that actually could lead into a similar line of action, this inhuman cruelness.
0: The gut feeling that I got when Willard was prepped for his mission was told about Kurtz. I got the feeling that Kurtz is some guy who just had enough and doesn't care.
1: To me, Kurtz was a person who understood what is war and what is being a soldier better than the actual goddamn army?
0: Yeah, he's leading an army that is behaving like Terminators, like uh, units without motives, feelings. They are just lifeless
1: followers of command. But that's kind of what is expected of you in that situation.
0: Yeah, if that's what, how you want to live your life, if there's any end game or any point in that for you, if that's good for your soul or whatever is left of you,
1: good. In the end, it comes it down, you know, like Willard says it, never get off the boat unless you go all the way. And that also applies to being a soldier. Like when you were army, were you ever actually presented in any way or form any kind of end game? Because I sure as fuck was never given a concept of that. What what I was being given is, was or is this demand to become someone who is trained at killing, who can leave his emotions out of the act of killing, act of cruelness, because you can't think about the value of life as you are pulling the trigger and you have to pull a trigger because the enemy has to go down. So you have to leave that part of you behind. Like it was said, you know, the emotions and feelings are the luxury of the civilians. And I... your, your life as a soldier, even in Finnish army, is, is that, you know, following orders, taking on missions, completing them, and then taking another. And it becomes a cycle Mm. Where you you are never given an end game. You are given a mission and you accomplish that. And you better as fuck better be cold and without a feeling. Because you can't let yeah, that feeling yeah. come in front of you when you are pulling the trigger and killing the next human killing the human next to you simply because he just happened to be under a wrong flag.
0: Yeah, you're trained to die for Concepts for that do not exist For the immaterial Well okay Sometimes material But uh, when it comes to this pompous Military parading And all that the army experience Is very much made of Feelings in fact You get this very very cold hearted Approach from people who lead the show That gives the wrong idea Of what are you doing here What the hell are you doing here if this is the way that you approach human life, one immaterial entity against another immaterial entity. With no regard particularly for human life and, and and if you're pulling these, you know, emotional speeches about your country and getting the emotions there on the way. Yeah, there was something artificial about it. Insincere.
1: And then again, I also had a bit of different experience when I I served my time like there was this very small group of individuals with whom I would say I would have actually been able to do incredible feats in real life situation people who I actually would have happily followed even to my death you sound
0: lucky you sound lucky Com- compared to me i would not give any faith to any of my mates in my team
1: in many ways i was i was incredibly lucky if you managed to actually find the viewpoint of a soldier this one guy actually then in the after that he could actually show you the next whole fucking 9 yards there was to see through those eyes
0: um not going to say that the the army is something that you should undoubtedly experience or it's something that you would lack in your life if you do not experience it, but it's some kind of an experience. And you, of course, if you don't go there, you will not see some of the viewpoints that we do have. In that sense, having the defense ministry as someone who never got into the army, there's something that rings hollows so and something's wrong.
1: That yeah, it is. Like I said, you know, these are things that are extremely hard to explain. I-, I haven't been able to explain what I felt and what I found spiritually and what I went through in the army, even to my family. I mostly just keep my mouth shut about all of these things, but there is something. There is something going through the army training, like you said, it gives you an experience. And at least for me, I, I found something deeper in that experience. I, I found a viewpoint, which now plays also part here during this episode when we are talking about understanding Kurtz and his philosophy. Because my understanding of that philosophy comes from that viewpoint which I got when I was in army.
0: Yeah, I can understand why he would fall into this mindset, this bit of his mind. But to have this army is something that is, it's a side product of his madness, and it could have been, I suppose, anything else as well. It is the diamond dogs, man. For example, well, here we now finally kill skirts, whatever the difference here might be. They are in the same place, but he is not interested. He has the choice, even in this dark place. He has the choice. It's not mandatory for him. His brain doesn't rewire in that sense automatically that he would need to lead any kind of army. He just leaves for whatever reason.
1: Yeah. Instead of leadership, instead of making his own direction through diversion, like Kurtz does. Willard chooses the path not of the leader, but of the soldier where he completes his mission and he returns back with no end game and with no any kind of a promise of anything else except that there will be a next mission and that the cycle will repeat. And you know Willard is a soldier, so thats what he does. The mission is complete, so now he waits for another one.
0: But people can be so atrocious that I can fully understand that somebody would. Like you said, you would not speak about your experiences at home. Some people even go the extra mile and they don't speak about anything at home. Or to their friends, or do anyone. They don't give anything away anymore because they see the treachery of their human counterparts. And I can respect that. As well,
1: yeah, there is also the fact that you can find some pretty dark and pretty terrifying things about yourself in there. So,
0: perhaps if you do not speak about yourself, the you does not, I believe, develop correctly. You, the you disappears, there's no one to talk to, there is no way to build relationships, human connections without sharing something intimate about yourself and to this day i'm not sure if one or the other is the correct way to go
1: yeah neither am i well henrik would you
0: recommend the apocalypse now
1: i most definitely would recommend it i can completely understand if you don't like like apocalypse now especially if you don't like the Redux version which is 49 minutes longer But I would still recommend it from the bottom of my heart. There is no movie like it. This is a a one-of-a-kind feature. Simply on the virtue of that, I would say that you should most definitely see this one at least once. Yeah. I also
0: like movies generally that are slow burn. This is, as you said, of course, a a one-of-a-kind experience in my whole life. I have I have never never seen anything like this and to say that this movie made an impression on me, like really an impression on me, after so many years there, there have not been many movies that have made any real impression on me for years and that's why you have to see the horror movies and all the films before you turn like 13, right? You get the best effect for life but Apocalypse Now was able to touch Maybe part of those experiences that I can never repeat again after childhood. And yeah, I would recommend it, obviously. Did you notice that there is no credits of any kind in the beginning nor the end?
1: Yeah, I did. I also did notice that the title of the movie is given only through graffiti. Yeah. Which also was kind of a bold choice to go. But again, this movie is nothing if not bold.
0: To give Francis Ford Coppola some leeway here, it is not a movie in the sense that the kind of dimensions that you go with this movie. It's very deep, quite thought out through the final product, and it just kind of sucks you in in a different way. And I think what contributes to that fact immensely is the improvised parts, or the fact of Francis Ford Coppola telling not to act. You can see the acting definitely in the supporting characters, but not in the lead. So the final budget was 31 million dollars, final gross was 83 million dollars in the box office in the USA There's music from the doors, the song is This Is The End Soundtrack was kind of a psychedelic experience in and of itself Well, any favorite quotes?
1: Well, if I would have to pick one, I guess I would go with I love the smell of napalm in the morning
0: is it actually this this saying is very popular? Is it originating from here? do you know?
1: It actually is as far as I've've managed to trace this okay. saying.
0: I always go back to my kind of favorite scene and the quote that I mentioned about the methods being unsound or not. That's my favorite quote. I don't see any method at all, sir. Are we mentally still sound after this episode, Henrik?
1: I don't know, you know, this has actually gone into pretty weird and even <laughs> somewhat terrifying directions.
0: Yeah, I think we touched on pretty <laughs> deep levels, alright.
1: At least, you know, unless uh, all the military stuff do not end up in the cutting room floor, make it the final product. You know, no one can say that we do not give something about or of ourselves here on this podcast, yeah, we actually gave very personal statements, confessions oh, yeah. about ourselves.
0: Well, hopefully you found it useful.
1: I found p- it eye opening in many ways. It's always nice to learn new things about you know <laughs> other people, yeah.
0: We're supposed to have some kind of an outro At this podcast After, after this episode I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit Looking for myself And how to close here But
1: I don't know Maybe we should just State that This is the end And just cut the podcast off Just stop recording